but uh, it's a total delight to be preaching this morning. And uh, for those of you that are visiting, we've been doing a series for a long time now out of the book of 1 Peter. So please turn, turn in your Bibles. Uh, when I used to say it in the old days, there would be like rustling of pages. Now it's like people's faces light up as they kind of look on their, on their iPhone. But uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to look this morning at a couple of verses that are the next in our series. And um, it's always amazing to me that when you preach like this, when you preach expositionally through God's words, how particularly apt things are at the given time that you preach. And so this morning I'm going to be talking about injustice and I'm going to be talking at face, about facing suffering. And that's what the portion is that we're going to talk about this morning. And it's been amazing. Uh, last week I was in Germany in a town called Kastelan, which is near Frankfurt. It means, uh, Kastelan means uh, castle on the, on the hill, castle in the high place. And uh, I didn't know this, but the Celts, the Scots and the Welsh, and they, they went to Europe many years ago and built some castles. And this is one of them in the middle of Germany, all right? Anyway, but anyway, so the Celts were there a long time ago. And uh, they built this castle, and this, I visited a church there, a really wonderful church, um, and uh, did some weekend of ministry. And what was so interesting to me about the, the, the weekend was I'd just been there the, the, for a couple of days, things had kicked off in Ukraine, and um, in the church were Russians, Ukrainians, and Germans trying to work it out. Now, anywhere in, in Europe, there's a, a kind of people kind of move all over the place, but what has been really interesting about Germany is that since the Second World War, there's been a really strong Russian influence into the east of Germany for obvious reasons. So most Germans, a lot of Germans speak Russian as well, and uh, obviously there's been a whole thing that's happened as well with people moving from the old Soviet Union into the west, and so Ukrainians, Latvians, Estonians, all over Europe. And so in this church that I was in, uh, the two people leading worship the day were two Ukrainian girls, and um, they were waiting for their families to get back from Odessa. Their parents had left a week before to go to the funeral of their grandfather, and uh, the funeral happened, and then everything kicked off in Ukraine, and they couldn't get back. And so they went, they took a ferry to Romania, and then hired a car, and uh, the Sunday morning that I preached, their family returned, and they were obviously full of joy that that uh, they'd managed to get out. The world has changed in, in this last week in a, a way that we haven't seen since the Second World War, and uh, a whole lot of possibilities are now on the table that we wished were never going to be ever seen in Europe again. And that's the the um, thing that we are facing right now as as people in the West. And I want to encourage you to continue to be praying trusting God and doing all that you can to help in terms of compassion to reach out to people. I just read in the news before the one and a half million people moving from the conflict. So let's be praying and we have partners that we um, are working with and we will continue to uh, feedback as we, as we can. All right, so, sorry, that was a bit long. I didn't mean it to be so long. Here we go. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 uh, says this. Who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Uh, that's a good question, Peter says at the beginning. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats, 
Do not be frightened, but in your heart revere Christ as Lord, and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks, to give the reason for your hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Jesus will be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer, what is, uh, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Jesus, I pray you'd help me. Uh, such a beautiful portion, such a helpful portion for us right now. Help me to communicate well and uh, that every person would be encouraged this morning and keep perspective for their lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we've kind of reached this portion in Peter's letter now where he, he started talking about relationships. And remember, over the last weeks, we've looked at relationships like husband, wife, servant, master. And uh, the big theme that we're trying to explore in this letter is how can we live well when times are difficult, all right? How do we live well when times are difficult? And the underlying thought in Peter's mind right now as he's writing this, this chapter is that some of the relationships that we have in our lives may cause us suffering, <laughs> may not always work out well. That's the kind of thought that Peter is processing as he writes. And so in 1 Peter 1 verse 6, remember he's, he's already said this, that we might have to go through various trials, um, and some people might end up persecuting us for our faith. Relationships don't always work out as we think they're going to work out. So Peter says in 1, in 1 Peter 1 verse 6, Rejoice in this, although for now a little while, if necessary, you might be grieved by various trials so that the testing of your faith proves genuine. So Peter's already said, in chapter 1, you might go through some hard times, but God is allowing these things so you, your genuine faith can be shown. And then in chapter 2, uh, he used the example of Jesus and said, you know, just as Jesus was slandered and maligned, so, you know, it might happen in your life. Be prepared that pe some people might not want to do you good as a Christian. And so he's, he's kind of been talking about that as a theme already. And then we looked at the thing of servants and masters and slaves. And uh, he said to the slaves, sometimes you might have an unreasonable master as the servants. You might not have a, a boss that always has your best interests at heart. And he says this, though, in verse 18 of chapter 2, Be subject to your master with all respect, not only to those that are good and gentle, but also to the unjust. I mean, Christianity is radical. <laughs> so, saying to people that are involved in the workplace, even if your boss is not good towards you, and he's not gentle, he's not kind, he doesn't have your... Submit to the guy and show some, through your life something of Christ's love in your, your, your life. This is a gracious thing, says Peter, mindful of God, that you endure sorrow while in suffering unjustly. Uh, this, is, this is a radical thought that Peter is expressing here. And so the idea is that it, when you are treated harshly or unjustly, um, that something of that helps you to see what Jesus endured, and he's an example to you in the things that you go through that are difficult. This is not easy. This is by the power of the Spirit. And then chapter 3, Helen reminded us about uh, Peter's word to wives and their relationship with their husband. And she said, she encouraged us that um, the wives, sometimes when your husband is disobedient to God's word, it's going to cause suffering in your life. It's going to make your life tough when your husband actually doesn't obey God's word. 
And that's a great challenge when the, the most close relationship that you have is not working out well because one of the partner is not actually in a good relationship with God. And her, the encouragement was, even if that happens, you work it out, you submit, you play on the same team, you pray, and you trust God to bring change to the person, that man, in your life by the power of the Spirit as you live out an example. It's a powerful, powerful thing. And by, in the same token, I could say that there are some wives that cause their husbands suffering. It works both ways. When you're not, your life is not aligned to God's Word. And so we have to be aware of that as we live out our lives. And so the, th the common theme in all of these things that Peter is mentioning is the, uh, the idea or the thought that there is unjust suffering in our lives. And sooner or later, I want to say to you as kindly as I can, all of us experience injustice. Whether you're a Christian or not, everyone will experience unjust suffering in their lives. It is a given. And so what the Bible points out is that there are different kinds of suffering that we need to be aware of. Now, in the affluent West, we th tend to think of suffering in terms of sickness, losing things, and losing our, our material goods. You know, if we are sick, we suffer. If we lose our material possessions, that's suffering. And we kind of, in the West, we, we tend to see suffering in those kind of terms. However, the Bible speaks much more generally about different kinds of suffering. So, for example, in the Old Testament, it's true that sickness is seen as suffering, like plagues. Remember when the, um, when the Israelites were being brought out of Egypt, there was plagues. But also, in the Old Testament, so much of, uh, of what speaks of suffering is oppression of people by other people. And so, for example, in the history of, of, um, of the nation of Israel, they were oppressed by the Egyptians. They were oppressed by the Assyrians, by the Persians, by the Romans. In the history of, of their, their nation, that was real for them, that their lives as a small country were oppressed by bigger countries with more power. And a lot of what happens in the Old Testament is around that kind of suffering where people are oppressed by other people that are militarily stronger. Brings perspective to what is happening right now in Russia, Ukraine. And the Old Testament is full of people crying out to God for deliverance from that kind of suffering. Not sickness, this kind of suffering. And it's uh, Psalm 34, verse 17. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. And he delivers them from all of their troubles. The Lord chose the brokenhearted and saves those that are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will, sl uh, will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. So in the midst of this, the promise of God to his people is deliverance, salvation, that is going to keep them and is going to protect them. This is good news. And so in the scripture, the worst kind of suffering that the Bible speaks of really is unjust treatment by the hands of other people. This is the worst kind of, of, of uh, suffering that the Bible speaks of. And so it seems like we, we really rally as people 
in times of natural disaster, and we really do help each other to bear natural disaster. And it's amazing when the world comes together, when there's an earthquake, a hurricane, a tsunami, poof, the world comes together, doesn't it? And aid is sent from this corner to that corner, and people help each other. And that's a very powerful and wonderful thing. But it's much more difficult. And what happens, we have to be really careful of, is when we are, are treated unjustly, what it tends to do on the inside is make us bitter. I don't deserve this. It's unjust. And then we can give in to bitterness in our lives, which is a cancer. And it happens when we face unjust treatment from other people. And so... Moving slightly to the Old Testament now, just to give some more context, the New Testament to give some more context. When the New Testament speaks of suffering, it also is not really mainly talking about sickness and material things. It's not really. And I'll, I'll show that to you now. It's mainly talking about suffering in the, as being mistreated by other people, even in the New Testament. So Peter is unpacking that thought now in 1 Peter 3 from verse 13. And he says this. Just to refresh, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Isn't that an incredible thought? <laughs> if you're suffering for what is good, Peter says it's a blessing in your life. Man, how do we understand that? Well, I want to give you a couple of things that I think Peter is saying. The first is this, that living in a biblical way is always the best way to live. Can I just say that again? Living in a biblical way is always the best way to live. That's why he says, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? So there's a sense that God's way is always the best way. And our lives, as by the power of the Spirit, we need to align our lives as much as we can around His Word. But this is the thing. <laughs> However much you do that, it is not ever a guarantee that people are going to respond to you in a gracious and kind way and say, that's a cool thing that you're doing. That's the implication. And remember what Helen show, uh, shared last week when she preached at this point in the letter when she was encouraging us to live well with each other and be kind, harmonious, brotherly, sympathetic, uh, humble, gracious, not, re not re re retaliating. And the promise of the Scripture is that if you live like that overall, over the course of your life, your life is going to be rewarding and peaceful and, and it's going to be seen to others by others to be there. If you live like that by the power of the Spirit, that's the promise. And so that principle is throughout all of the Scripture. For example, the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5 of Matthew, you can see Jesus unpack all of those thoughts yeah, this is how you should live, and if you live like this, the kingdom of God is yours. There's going to be something that's going to happen in your life that is good and profound, that changes you and changes other people. The book of Proverbs in the Old Testament is full of advice on how to live well by the power of the Spirit, and the, the promise is, if you live like this, things will go well with you, and of course that is true. But we need to be discerning as Christians when we think about suffering and think about Handling that positively in our lives. And this is what I want to say. I think in my experience in ministry over 30 years, I've, I've seen this, that the tendency of many Christians is to hold together sin and suffering too tightly. Yeah? They hold it together too tightly. And that's very negative for what, because it does two things. It causes people to feel guilty when they are going through hard times and when they are suffering. They say, something is wrong with me. 
This shouldn't be happening to me because I'm a Christian. And secondly, the other part of the negative thing is it causes them to think the same of other people. In other words, if something is going wrong in your life and you're suffering, there's something wrong with you. You have done something wrong. There must be some sin in your life if you are suffering. Not biblical at all. And I want to show that to you this morning. Jesus systematically destroys that thought. And I'll show you now. You know, we, we, we don't, might not say this out loud, but we have this thought in our, in our mind. If you really were being obedient, if you really were spiritual, this wouldn't be happening to you. Man, what a cruel thing. What an unbiblical thing to say to any person. It is true that suffering did come into the world because of sin, because of the, for, the uh, uh, that humanity fell. But it is not biblical to say that the root cause of every suffering is caused by particular sin. And this is what I'm saying. Jesus destroyed it. Here, this is what Jesus said. In Luke 16, you can read it for yourself. In verse 19, there's a story about a rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus, Lazarus was a poor man. The rich man had lots of money. And you can read the story there of, of how Jesus shows in that situation that what's happening in the suffering of the one man's life has got nothing to do with his riches or his spirituality or how he lived. In Luke 13, Jesus says this. In verse 1, there were some Romans, the Romans killed some Jews that were offering sacrifices in the temple. And this is, this is what Jesus says in verse, uh, Luke 13, verse 1. There were some present at that time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. In other words, they had been killed in the temple. And he answered them, Jesus, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Do you think there was something wrong with them? more than anyone else, that they were slaughtered by Pilate when they were offering sacrifices? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. This is what Jesus says. And then he uses another example. He says, or those 18 on whom the tired Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, unless you repent, you will all be like them. <laughs> This is Jesus. He's obliterating this thing that somehow suffering is connected to sin in your life. What about John 9 verse 1? As he passed by Jesus, he saw a blind man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, this is the Old Testament kind of mindset, you know? We'll talk about Job just now. But this is the Old Testament mindset. If you serve in God, you are blessed materially in every way. You know, so what, this guy, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? There must, there, there's some connection to sin, must be, because he's been born blind. And what does Jesus say? It's not this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. Jesus is saying, it's got nothing to do with sin. It's going to, some, it's my glory is going to be displayed in him. And so, in summary... Living a biblical life keeps us largely free from much unnecessary suffering, but it's not a guarantee that we're ever going to be spared from all suffering. The best way I can explain it, it's like driving a car. It's like being defensive in your driving style. It's like anticipating 
that there could be an accident and doing all that you can by living well to avoid the accident. Does that make sense to you? You can drive recklessly on the highway, and there's a chance, more, more of a chance you're going to have an accident. If you drive wisely, if you drive defensively, less chance you're going to have an accident. That's, that's what it is like living a biblical life. It's not ever going to guarantee you of avoiding every suffering in your life, but largely it is as you live by the Word of God and you live by the power of His suffering. And so... That's what Peter's trying to say. And, and when we look at the Old Testament, we see ultimately God is sovereign and he allows suffering and it's under his control ultimately. Um, and I mean, Deuteronomy is quite plain. In, verse, in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 3, it says, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you in the desert, in the wilderness for these 40 years, in order that he might humble you and test you to see what is in your heart whether you will keep his commandments or not. Something of the testing of God comes upon our lives when things are tough. And we rarely see what is in our hearts when things are tough. Isn't that true? You rarely see how you respond when things are tough. When, when, when your situation, your relationships are fraught, you kind of see the ugliness in your heart that comes out when you speak to someone with anger. And just like, where did that come from? Well, it was there all the time. And this difficult thing has just revealed it. Now you can deal with it. Yeah? What about Daniel? Or what, what about Abraham? If you read Abraham's story, this walk by faith and this amazing culmination in Genesis 22, um, he's tested all through his life. And God is just kind of helping him to live by faith and develop his faith. And uh, right in Genesis 22, at the end, when he, he's prepared to offer up his son, which was completely unthinkable to Jewish people. I mean, pagan cultures did that. They burnt their children to offer up to idols was unthinkable. And he's prepared to do it. And then the angel says, no, stop. And what does God say? He says, now I see you are my friend. And Abraham is called a friend of God at that point. It's incredible. God has so done something in his life and tested him and tried him that his faith is pure. And there's a beautiful thing that happens in his life through the difficult things that he goes through. What about Daniel? You know what? I, it was incredible. Daniel is a prime example of how doing the right thing can get you into trouble. Following God can get you into trouble. Daniel, great example. Why? Bow down and worship me, says the king. Daniel says, no, I want to follow God. I'm not going to bow down and worship you. And what does that do? It gets him into trouble, into the lion's den. Yes? What about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Same thing. Doing the right thing, doing the righteous thing, got them into trouble, caused suffering in their lives. But ultimately, God profoundly, beautifully rescues them for all of the, from all of that trouble because they've honored him. Amen. And so... I mean, Job uh, says this, Behold, blessed is the one who God reproves. Don't despise the discipline of the Lord God. Or uh, Proverbs 3, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be wary of his reproof because the Lord disciplines those whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Amen? So we have to keep our perspective when we think about this. Um, 
One more example. Uh, there, there, are occasional, there are occasional examples in the New Testament where Jesus does connect suffering with a particular sin. And so this, there's this kind of thing we have to always be wise about. For example, in John chapter 5, we see this story. It says, um, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. There was a Jerusalem, was the sheep gate, and by the sheep gate was a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which is five colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. And there was one man there who had been an invalid from, for 38 years. And when G Jesus saw him lying there, he knew he'd already been there a long time. And he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. So when the water is stirred up, and when I'm going to take another step down before me, Jesus said, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once that man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, Is it the Sabbath? It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. How dare you be healed on a Sunday, on a Sabbath day? <laughs> but he answered, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who's that man that said it to you? And he points him out. And then it says this, and I've never seen this before. Now the man who had been healed, did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. But afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, so that nothing worse happens to you. I've never seen that before. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. So there, de definitely, Jesus does make a connection. He says, well, actually, don't sin, because it, it can bring... Difficulty into your life. And what about 1 Corinthians 11, where it talks about us breaking bread together, and it connects sin with sickness. It says this, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body of Jesus, eats and drinks judgment on himself, and that's why some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you have died, because you didn't take the body and blood of Jesus, the breaking of bread, you took it inappropriately. It brought judgment into your life. Or what about James 5, last one? Verse 14, is anyone amongst you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray, them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sin, he will be forgiven. So there again, it connects sin in the context of praying for healing. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. So here we have this, um, the context. Old Testament, New Testament speaks about suffering in many different ways, not just in particular ways. The first thing that I want to say to you is that living a righteous life is always good. It's always the right way. It doesn't guarantee you're not going to have any suffering. And I've tried to point that out clearly. But now, even more than that, Peter says something that's even more amazing. He says, amazingly, we, are to, we must treat injustice in our lives and suffering as a blessing. Come on, Peter. Surely you're not saying that. Yes, he is. Even if you suffer for what he's doing right, you're blessed. Man, that's hard. Don't you think that's hard? It's incredibly hard. And I think this is one of the most crucial things we need to grasp as Christians living in the 21st century. Suffering may come our way because we are living a godly life. Yes, because we are living a godly life. And 
There is, unfortunately, we have inherited in the West a, a prosperity kind of culture in the church, which says this, that if you are obedient to the Scripture, you can be assured of a happy, trouble-free life, full of prosperity, full of blessing, full of God's financial provision in your life. And I say to you kindly, that's not the, that's not the gospel. It's not the teaching of the New Testament. And Job's friends made this error in the Old Testament. They assumed that God's blessing and, and, and Job's prosperity had to do with his piety, with his, the fact that he was, he was following God. And when trouble came into his life, they were certain that he had done something wrong. And so they accuse him, his friends, they, they kind of accuse him of all these things. And the, the implication is that for him to be restored materially and to know the blessings of God, he needed to repent of some sin. And once he had done that, then God re would restore him. Well, that was the Old Testament kind of mindset. And then Jesus comes along and he changes everything. And can I just point you to this amazing scripture, Luke chapter 6, in verse 20. Luke chapter 6, in verse 20. You know it well. It says this. Looking at his disciples, those that were following him, Jesus says this, Blessed are you who are poor. No, no, no. The Pharisees, no, blessed are you if you are rich. No, that's, that's a sign of God's blessing on your life. If you have money, if you have flocks, if you have many wives and concubines. I mean, this is the Old Testament thing, isn't it? If you have flocks and herds and much of everything, you are blessed by God. Jesus comes along says exactly the opposite. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Come on, Jesus. Are you, are, you, are you serious? Yes, he is. He carries on. Blessed are you who are hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you, reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Come on, Jesus, you can't be serious. Yes, he is. Because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how your ancestors treated the prophets. And then he says this, but woe to you who are rich. Come on, Jesus. Can't be serious. Yes, serious. Woe to you who are rich. What is he doing? He's dismantling an Old Testament view of the world. That if you are wealthy and, and uh, much materially, somehow that is an automatic assumption that you are following God and that His blessing is on your life. Woe to you, he says, if you are rich, you have already received your comfort. Woe to you if you are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, because that's how the, uh, your ancestors treated the false prophets. Man, Jesus is radical in every way. Peter's making this very clear. When you suffer for doing what is right, it is a blessing in your life. And this is one of the most amazing and surprising aspects of Christian life. It's not, I'm not saying to you that we enjoy the trials and the troubles. I'm not saying you to, we enjoy suffering. That would be absolutely weird. <laughs> But the, way, the word is, we rejoice. We still have hope in the midst of things when it's going wrong. We still have hope. Jo James chapter 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you 
fall into when you meet trials of every kind, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness has its full effect, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Oh, Paul. Romans 5 verse 3. More than this, we rejoice in our sufferings, says Paul. I mean, you know, context is everything, right? You know, when Jesus was, said those things, Augustus and Tiberius were Roman emperors. Go read your history and see how kind and just Augustus and Tiberius were. They were not nice men. They were the Stalins. They were the Putins of this world. And Jesus says those things. And by the time Paul is, is writing his letters from Rome and to the Philippian church and encouraging all, everyone to have hope in the midst of difficult times, who is the emperor? Nero. He's mad. He's absolutely bonkers. He is, he is obliterating people. And in, the, in that context, Paul writes these amazing things and says, this is how I want you to be as a Christian. profound. So then, I've tried to convince you this morning that suffering is going to come to your life. Just because you're a Christian doesn't guarantee you're not going to see some kind of suffering over the course of your life. Whether it's materially or oppression by other people or unfair treatment or sickness, it's coming. The important thing is, how do we face it as Christians? Okay, that's the hole. Here's the good part. We're going to dig ourselves out of the hole. How do you face it as a Christian? It's there in the text, verse 14. Do not fear. Can I encourage you? Do not fear. Do not fear what is coming, says Peter. Do not fear threats. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, revere Christ as Lord. Come on now. It's such an important thing to God in terms of how we view our lives. The apostles and the prophets in the Old Testament were constantly trying to make this point to God's people. Don't fear. Don't take your eyes off Him. Don't put your eyes on what's happening. Think differently from everybody else because you have a living hope on the inside of you. Jesus, He should change your perspective. If we are just behaving and res responding like everybody else in the world, we are not salt and we are not light. We are just like everybody else. If there is genuinely not a hope for the future in our hearts, that is by the power of the Spirit. I'm sorry, am I too loud? By the power of the Spirit, then we are not living out Christian faith as we should be. You should have a hope. You should still be optimistic. You should still be full of vision for the future because you are not like everybody else. You have a living hope in you. His name is Jesus. And when you see things from his perspective, he changes your heart. He changes everything about your life. And the future looks different when Jesus is Lord of your life. Thank you. <laughs> That's the gospel. That's why it's called good news, that you don't have to be like everybody else. You don't have to respond with anxiety and depression like everybody else because you have a hope and a future whose name is Jesus. And he's changed your past and he's given you a whole new present and he's guaranteed a new future for you. Does that mean you're not going to go through difficult things? No. But it does mean when you go through difficult things, you can go through with joy, with hope, saying, this is not going to conquer me. This is not going to kill me because my hope is in Jesus. That's the difference. 
That's what it means to be a Christian. We should be largely unmoved when people persecute and try and make us afraid with threats. Yeah? Peter is trying to say, I want you to be calm. I want you to keep your head. I, I don't want you to freak out when every news headline changes and you kind of suddenly, oh! You know, the scripture is saying, I don't want you to be like that. You must have a sure hope, a steadfast hope that helps you ride the waves. Because ultimately, it doesn't matter if your body dies, your spirit is alive and in Christ. And it's whether you live or whether you die, we are one in Christ. I mean, it's, it seems, you know, as I'm preaching this, I, I feel like it's, it's almost irresponsible, isn't it? To say to people, don't worry. Don't be anxious in the midst of all that's happening in the world. It seems a little bit irresponsible. But that is the gospel. That, that is what the gospel says. In the midst of these things, we do not have to fear. We do not have to give in to, 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 to uh, what the world is giving into because of the hope that we have in Jesus. Man, don't be afraid. Be calm. And then Peter says something even more positive. He says, in your heart, revere Christ Jesus as Lord. So it's not just like you stop being negative and you restrain yourself. It's incredibly positive. Uh, Peter's saying, press into your relationship with Jesus. Allow him to transform your life completely. Help, ask him to change your thinking. Ask him to change your attitude. Ask him to ch change your behavior, your decision-making, uh, the right that you have to yourself and your wealth. Help him to change all of that. That's what it means to be a Christian. You, you, you see things differently, and then you say, God, my whole life is yours. Everything about my life is yours. You take me, you use me, you do whatever you want with my life. I am yours, and you are mine. That, man, that, that changes everything. And that's why Daniel could be fearless <laughs> in the den. He, he was like, I don't care what you, you, th you think you can do to me. I, I, know, I know my Savior. And he, he will deliver me. And that's why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could be so fearless. You're going to kill my body? Sure, kill my body. That's why the early Christians could be murdered. And the Christian faith still grew. They did not fear that love their lives even to death. I, I don't speak this over everyone. But I, I want to say this. Perhaps the time is coming when some of us will give our lives. We will know people in this congregation that gave their lives for the gospel. Secondly, how do we face it? We face it fearlessly, injustice, fearlessly, and with a renewed passion for Jesus. And secondly, we face injustice ready to speak of the hope that we have. That's how we do it. Always be prepared, says Peter, to give an answer to everyone who asks you uh, and give about the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and do this with respect. So I've got 10 minutes, I'm landing. Peter assumes that every Christian, every one of us who are believers in Jesus, have a great hope for the future. And I want to ask you this morning, as you look at what's happening in Europe, do you still have a great hope for the future? Yeah, it's a good question to ask. Do I still have a great hope for the future? Because 
every one of us who believes by faith has a great and living hope inside of us. His name is Jesus. And Peter takes it for granted when he's writing these things that God is going to bless us, that God is going to vindicate us, maybe in this world, maybe only at the judgment seat of Christ when we receive our reward, but the vindication will come. The well done, good and faithful servant will come. Maybe in this life, maybe not. Maybe only later, but it will come. He's absolutely assured of that. And he also takes it for granted that God's future reward in our lives will be obvious to everybody else. And the way that we live now should be obvious to everyone else. That Christians should be seen to be fearless in the way that we live. That we should expect God to intervene in every situation. Like what we're facing right now. We should be praying and say, God, intervene. Supernaturally, by the power of your spirit, through human beings, intervene in the situation so it doesn't have to turn out in a negative, neg more negative way than it already is. We are, have that expectation. God, intervene. We, 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 we don't have any guilt or get timid when people treat us badly. No, we don't. No? It's part of the Christian life. I'm going to live righteously. I'm going to live with conviction. I'm going to live with courage. I'm not going to let this put me off by the power of the Spirit. And Peter knows that there will be a time when your friends and your family see that in your life and they come and ask you and say, what is it that makes you be, behave like that? How can you be so calm when things are around you are so out of kilter? At that moment, says Peter, when they ask you, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have and say, there's a living hope inside of me. I know his name is Jesus. He's transformed my life. My future is gone. My present is being transformed, and he has a hope for me in the future. This is how, why I have hope, because of Jesus and what he's done inside of me. At that moment, be prepared to say the reason for your hope. And when you do, Peter says, even when you do it, be kind, be gentle. Don't be like, oh, why are you so weak? Don't you know? No, why? He's saying, because if you do that, you don't have a good conscience. If you find, if I, if it finishes with keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior will be ashamed of their slander. In other words, it will do us little good to speak about the blessings of God and what He's done in our lives and how we have a hope. If we have a guilty conscience, if we, if we have, are, are speaking unkindly to people, we have to weigh, live in a way that's above reproach by the power of the Spirit so that others are not in a position to point fingers and say, those Christians, they say one thing, but they live another. That's the point. That's what he's saying. So I conclude with this. Verse 17. Peter says, we shouldn't suffer, we shouldn't fear suffering too much. Suffering's going to come. Don't fear it too much, my friends. But he does say this. Fear suffering for the wrong reason. <laughs> so, yeah, suffer for what's good, but don't suffer because of your own stupidity, your own selfishness, your own unkindness. Don't say that you're suffering at work because you're rude to everybody and you're unkind in every way and then say people are persecuting you. That's what he's saying, isn't it? Suffer for what is good, yeah, but, but if you're suffering because you're being stupid and selfish and unkind, well, then change. 
changed by the power of the Spirit. Don't, don't blame your, your suffering on your stupidity. If you're being stupid, just admit it and change your behavior. Suffer for what is good, says Peter. It's better to suffer for what is good than, what is, than for doing evil. Well, I've tried to encourage you this morning just to say that as the kingdom of God advances, as God's kingdom comes in this world and pushes back darkness, that, that is going to involve some suffering for you and some suffering for me. But that's part of the plan that God has so that the world can see his kingdom. His kingdom can come through us, through our lives, to be a blessing to many, many people. Be prepared to speak to anyone about the reasons that you have that you can be full of hope as you face the future and not given to despair. When circumstances around you are changing all the time, you be steadfast, calm, certain by the power of the Holy Spirit because of the living hope of Jesus that is inside of you. And when Jesus is living on the inside of you, He changes everything. How you see yourself, how you see the world, how you see world events, how you see other people. Don't panic like everybody else. You have a living hope inside of you. It keeps you calm, keeps you sure, keeps you steadfast as we go through this life together. Amen. Let me pray for you. Holy Spirit, we, we thank you that you're with us. We thank you that you're always, always pointing us to Jesus in, in, in every area of our lives. We want to say thank you so much for your work in our lives. Thank you for your kindness towards us, that you gently lead us into truth. You, you never hurry us. You, you take us at a pace where we can understand. And all you want to do is show us more of Jesus. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray this morning that you would... Continue to reveal yourself to us, all that you have for us. In the midst of the changing circumstances around us, Lord, I pray for this church that every single person will keep calm, not because of stoicism and just biting their lips, but because of the great hope that they have in Jesus, the living hope who changes everything. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to so live our lives in these uncertain times that people would say, what is the reason for your hope? Why are you so calm? Why are you so sure of the future? And we can say, because we know the living Christ who's transformed our lives. Help us to live like that, Jesus. Help us to live kindly and graciously in a world which is unkind and ungracious in every way, that we can point people to you the great King, the Savior of the world. Lord, I just pray that you take these words that I've spoken this morning and uh, let them bear fruit in our hearts, in the soil of our hearts that would transform our lives. And uh, I pray, Lord, as we, we simply share coffee and tea now and enjoy friendship, that you would continue to encourage us through each other. Uh, thank you for this amazing body. Thank you for this church. Thank you for every single person. And Lord, we truly want it to be a place where the lonely are planted in families and they can enjoy friendship and acceptance for who they are. And we trust you that you continue to do that now by the power of your Spirit.
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.